Our Father, we run to you again and we pray that you would do in us what we are incapable of bringing about in ourselves. And that is that you would establish us in your love for us, root us and establish us through Christ. And then help us to grasp more and more of the boundless dimensions of your love to understand it more deeply. But not just that, we pray that you would help us to know your love in an experiential and ultimately in a transforming way that we would be changed as a result of your loving presence in our lives. Lord, that's our invitation to you. And we say yes to you as you answer that invitation. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. So let's bring our scripture passage up on the screen, if we could, please. And I just want to invite you all to uh, either read along with me or quote along with me or attempt to quote along with me as we go through Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Would you say it with me, please? For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So we're beginning the year by focusing on the love of God for us as God's people. And specifically, we are focusing on this passage from chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, his prayer that we find there. And just to remind you, we are asking everyone in the church to pray this prayer every day for the rest of the church for the rest of the year. We're also asking everybody to memorize this passage and to talk about it as God brings us together and to talk about its impact on us. So if you don't have one yet, I want to encourage you to grab one of the bookmarks that are available in the pews and in the chairs uh, in front of you. Make sure you have one that is the gray one, which is typo-free. Uh, it actually seems to be having trouble making up its mind whether it's gray or brown. So grab the ground one or the bray one, whatever color it is. Uh, make sure you have that. And we also have extra copies available in the, uh, out in the reception area at the reception desk and back in the back of the sanctuary at the connection desk. So as we pointed out, uh, this prayer of Paul's for the church has three main requests that make it up. And we've been focusing for the past couple of weeks on the first one of those requests, starting in verse 16, which is the second block of text in that, on that uh, bookmark. And that says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So for the past two Sundays, we've been zooming in even further and looking at the heart of this request, which is the person of Christ on whom this whole request pivots. So part of what we discovered as we went back over the last few weeks and explored who this Jesus Christ is, is that there is no way to separate the love of God from the person of Jesus. The love of God isn't something that's theoretical or philosophical. It is personal. It is fleshed out in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived among us as a fellow human being to reveal the love of God to us. And Jesus died in our place on the cross to reconcile us to God and to bring us into a relationship, a love relationship with God for eternity. So this morning, we're going to go back to this first request and walk our way through it piece by piece and see if we can pull all of this together. And then at the end of the message this morning, you're going to have a chance to respond to it uh, in a time of prayer. Paul begins by saying, I pray that out of his glorious riches. As we begin this prayer, Paul makes it clear that God's answer to our prayers is not based on what he finds on us. It's based on what he finds in himself. Eight verses earlier, in verse 8 of chapter 3, Paul has just described God's glorious riches as being boundless, unending, inexhaustible. Paul reminds us that God is not stingy and that God's resources are not scarce. There's no limit to the glorious riches of God. The resources available to answer this prayer are limitless. So what's the hardest, most stuck place in your heart or in your life? God has the resources to wake the unwakeable, to redeem the unredeemable, and to move the unmovable. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. We've come here to one of the really interesting aspects of this passage. I'm, I'm sure that you've noticed this and probably have wondered why all the emphasis on God's strength and God's power when we talk about us just coming to know God's love better. Why all the emphasis on praying for God's help? Well, a portion of Paul's letter in the previous chapter, I think gives us some really important clues to that. Flip with me over um, to chapter two, the first 10 verses of Ephesians. And let me just point out four hints and we'll come back to these in a few weeks and explore why we so desperately need God's help when it comes to our experiencing the love of God for us. First of, uh, first of all, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, our natural state, apart from God's gracious work in our hearts, is that we are spiritually dead. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, verse 1. I think the doctors and nurses among us would corroborate the fact that if someone is dead, it takes a fair amount of power to bring them from death back into life and to raise them up. Which is exactly what Paul tells us God does for us through Christ in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. Well, a second hint about why this power is so necessary for us is that in the next two verses, Paul describes that we are all trapped by the evil one in a never-ending cycle of seeking to satisfy our desires in something other than God. You see in chapter uh, 2, verses 2 and 3, we're following the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, chasing after its desires. It takes power, as anybody's involved uh, in, in helping to serve as a counselor or as a spiritual director or as a psychologist or a psychiatrist. It takes power to help break a person out of an addictive cycle of chasing after their own desires and bringing them into a place of peace. 
There's a third hint in verses 3 and 4 and a fourth hint in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2 about why God's power is so necessary in order for us to understand and experience God's love. And they both have ways to do with um, how we can get stuck in twisted or wrong understandings of who God is, what he's like, or what the Christian life is all about. One of the ways we get twisted around in our understanding traces back to verse 3, which says that we are, all of us, objects of God's wrath. The church has sometimes read that as the definitive statement of God's heart toward us, meaning that God's fundamental outlook toward us is that he always sees us through our sin and his orientation towards us is one of perpetual impatience, disappointment, and anger toward us. But that view completely fails to take into account the very next verse and countless other verses in the New Testament like it, which says that we are objects of God's love. That view that God fundamentally views us with a heart of anger completely distorts God's character because it fails to understand what wrath really is. Um, I remember as a teenager, my little sister a year younger, was uh, maybe uh, 12 or so, she and my dad were in an argument, and my sister was crying. She felt so hurt by the way my dad was relating to her. And she, she yelled at my dad, you don't love me. And my dad yelled back at my sister, I do too love you, darn it. Only darn wasn't the word that he used. (laughs) And before I could stop myself, out of my mouth blurted, well, that sure is a strange way to tell someone you love them. God is not a dad who loses his temper with us. God's wrath is his fair and reasonable judgment, his just and proportionate response as a holy God to our rebellion against our creator and to our moral failure. God doesn't hate us. Our sin causes him deep offense and it elicits his just judgment as a holy God, but he doesn't hate us. He loves us. His love and his character are unimpeachable. But it takes power to break us out of a wrong understanding of what God's love is like. One is based more on our human experience. There's a hint of one more distortion that we can fall into in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. And that's the tendency for us to see God's love as conditional. Everything hangs on us continuing to get it right. God loves us when, or God loves us if, or God loves us as long as. And if we mess up, we put our whole relationship with God at jeopardy. Those are all flawed ways of understanding the nature of God's love. Paul is correcting that view when he talks in verse 8 and verse 9 about how Jesus rescues us. His rescue of us from beginning to end is his work and not something we contribute. Not from ourselves, he says. Not as a result of our work so that no one can boast. Again, it takes power to shift us out of an ingrained and persistent way of thinking about what the Christian life is all about and thinking of it in terms of something that really depends upon us. So can you identify with any of those ways that you might be stuck spiritually or might have a flawed or twisted view of God or of the Christian life that God, that you desperately need God's power to break you out of? Well, that's exactly why we are praying this prayer together for ourselves and for one another. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, here we come to the very heart of Paul's first request and really the heart of God's redemptive project, which is his plan to bring us into the experience of his love for us. And that is for Christ to dwell in our hearts. 
Now, you may have already noticed this as you've been memorizing this and praying this. This passage is what theologians call Trinitarian. As Christians, we believe that God exists eternally as one essence in three persons. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. Well, the whole book of Ephesians is incredibly Trinitarian. Right from the stunning opening section that describes the Father choosing and adopting us, the Son redeeming us through his blood, and the Spirit marking us as belonging to God and guaranteeing our eternal inheritance. Incidentally, a really cool way of studying the book of Ephesians is just to get three different colored markers and to go through the book, highlighting in different colors the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's really moving. Well, this prayer is one of those places where all three persons of the Trinity are specifically mentioned. The Father is the one being prayed to and being asked to make his love known to us. The Spirit is the one who is empowering men and women and young people and children to believe and to receive the Father's love. And Christ, the Son, is the one who comes and dwells in our hearts to root us and establish us in God's love for us. So here is why this is so crucially important for us. This this Trinitarian dimension of redemption isn't just some, well, that's interesting, obscure theological detail. Paul is making it really clear that our salvation is God's work from beginning to end. He is at work in heaven initiating redemption, and he is at work here on earth accomplishing redemption. Here's a video of what God did. Look at Marcus Mariota on the right-hand side. He's a quarterback, just receives the ball. Looking for someone to throw it to. He throws it. He catches it. He goes for the touchdown. In case you missed it, let's see it again. He throws it. He catches it. And he gloriously dies for the touchdown. Gotta love that. When God redeems us, he doesn't just throw a Hail Mary and then leave the rest to us. I kind of like that one. (laughs) God throws the ball, God receives the ball, and God runs the ball to the end zone and scores, just like Marcus Mariota did. Redemption is not about what God starts, it's about what God carries through to completion. Sometimes we can have an incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection theology but only an incarnation, crucifixion understanding of the Christian life. We affirm that Jesus rose from the dead as part of our beliefs, but when we talk about the Christian life, we just focus on how Jesus came to earth, and then he died to purchase our forgiveness, and then we sort of take it from there. But the primary symbol of the, Christian, of the Protestant church isn't the cross. It's the empty cross. That's right. It's the empty cross. Redemption isn't just Jesus dying for us. It is the risen Jesus taking up residence in us, alive in us, empowering us, transforming us from the inside out by his spirit. That is really incredible. And the implications for the Christian life are huge. If Jesus is alive in me, the Christian life shifts from what I do for my Savior who died for me to what my risen living Savior is doing inside of me. It's less my life lived for him, and it's more his life lived in and through me. Paul captures this incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection understanding of the Christian life in a really powerful way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. 
I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. I think it adds so much to our understanding of this passage when we realize that there were two different Greek words that Paul could have chosen here for dwell. The first word is one that means a temporary place to stay, like a a room in a hotel or a couch to crash on for a few nights at a friend's place. But that's not the word that Paul uses. He chose the other word, which means take up residence, move in and settle down. It implies a permanent home. Where Jesus dwells, Jesus lives as a continual presence. Does your life reflect that sort of understanding, your Christian life, your life of faith, that sort of understanding that this isn't just a dead Savior that you serve, but a living Savior who is at work on the inside of you? I want to ask Tony. Tony, come on up here if you would, please. I asked Tony Rajab if you would come and share with us some of the really... um, exciting ways that God is shifting his understanding of what the Christian life entails. Tony, thanks so much for doing this. Give you a mic. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Family and I have been coming to Covenant for about four years. I appreciate David's request to share my gratitude and excitement about what God has been doing which, by the way, Covenant has been a very big part of. And I appreciate his suggestion to share this as a prayer because that really helped me focus. So, dear God, thank you for everything you have done for me, especially these past few years, including the opportunity for renewed relationship with you, which came through conviction, through accepting your gift of salvation in Christ, and through the teaching, examples, and friendships of this church family. I know it was you, God, because you often moved just before life challenges happened, and you often moved in very quiet ways and humble places. I also know it was your undeserved love, because even after years of me procrastinating and leaving you on the sidelines, you kept knocking in different ways, and you whispered some things like, Are you sure you want to keep putting this off, Tony? You've received many blessings, and I don't begrudge those, but you know how this life ends. You already lost your mother-in-law within six months and your aunt within one week of cancer diagnoses. Although you loved them, you kind of thought you would have them forever, didn't you? What are you waiting for? And then within a couple years of turning back toward you, God, my father also died, and I face some cancer myself. So thank you for moving before those challenges and even adding some blessings to them, like a favorite passage of scripture for a reason, the kindnesses of others, and a good recovery. What else could all this be but you and your undeserved love, God? Thank you for continuing to help me understand that your love and salvation are gifts not earned through do's, don'ts, and works but that gratitude should still prompt change in action. You know I'm trying to listen better for your voice, respond with obedience, and be increasingly aware of needs and spiritual battles, many of which are very close by. 
But you also know that I'm so used to thinking that results come through effort, even though I know it's really all your work and I just sometimes accept the opportunity to be involved. So as I slowly let your undeserved love take root, the ways it begins to live back out through me are still inconsistent and often small. Very little things like not always being such a stingy tipper, but letting my gratitude for blessings make me want to bless others. Like a little less taking relationships for granted, and maybe even a little less being grumpy. Or like a desire to know which of my colleagues at work are also believers, just because when we see each other around the office and say hello, it brings some extra joy. So thank you, God, for all this, and as you will, may it happen more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Wow. So beautiful. Well, Tony's sharing brings us to the last two crucial words in this passage, and then to the opportunity for us to be able to respond together in prayer. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. God makes all of this available to us, but it isn't automatic, any of it. True faith means this is the way that all of this business of Jesus making my heart his home comes about. This is the way it happens. By my saying yes to his invitation and then opening my life up to his transforming presence. So let me just give you some parallel examples to make this idea clear of the necessity for us not to just look in upon this and appreciate it, but actually be able to take a step and receive it. It isn't enough to receive a letter of acceptance from Purdue University. I don't become a Boilermaker until I accept the college enrollment offer by signing my name to it and sending it back with a deposit. It isn't enough to, become a, to have a constitutionally guaranteed right to become a U.S. citizen. I don't become a citizen until I submit the naturalization form and pass a test on U.S. history and governance and then swear loyalty to the nation. It isn't enough to have someone ask me to marry them in order for me to be a married person. I don't become married until I say yes to the proposal and then I enter into uh, the covenant relationship of marriage through an exchange of vows, of promises before God. And it isn't enough to learn about Jesus or try hard to do things you think Jesus wants you to do. I don't have Jesus dwelling in my heart until I receive him through faith. That is, I open my heart to him. I trust him as the one who rescues me, and I entrust my life to him as the one who rules over me. Faith is a relational word first, not just an intellectual word. It doesn't mean merely believing certain things are true about Jesus. It means putting my confidence in Jesus. It's my trusting invitation to God, or more accurately, it is my yes to his invitation to me, my yes to his presence and his work in my life, entrusting myself to him. John chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Seventy years ago, a pastor named Robert Munger wrote a sermon that has since become a classic. It's called My Heart, Christ Home. 
I remember reading it shortly after I became a follower of Christ, and it was really significant in my moving from simply believing in Christ to really opening the fullness of my life up to him. It's on the internet. You can also find it on Amazon, My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Munger. It's actually a message on this same passage of scripture that we've been studying this year, Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, in which Munger imagines his heart is like a house that he invites Jesus to come and to live in. So he begins by speaking about the mystery of this whole idea of inviting Jesus to come and to take up residence in our heart. He writes, it's difficult for me to think of a higher privilege than to make Christ a home in my heart, to welcome, to serve, to please, to fellowship with him there. One evening, I did that. I invited Jesus Christ into my heart, and what an entrance he made. It was not a spectacular, emotional thing, but it was very real. It was at the very center of my life. He came into the darkness of my heart and turned on the light. He built a fire on the cold hearth, and he banished the chill, filling the emptiness with his own loving, wonderful fellowship. I have never regretted opening the door to Christ. After Christ entered my heart, and in the joy of this new relationship, I said to him, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want to have you settle down here and be perfectly at home. Everything I have belongs to you. Let me show you around and introduce you to the various features of the home so that you may be more comfortable and that you may have fuller fellowship to, and that we may have fuller fellowship together. He was very glad to come, of course, and happier still to be given a place in my heart. Let me just pause here. Have you ever taken that step? Have you ever invited Jesus to come and to live in your heart? If not, is there something that is keeping you from doing that this morning? In just a moment, we'll give you an opportunity in our prayer time to do just that. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, there's another dimension to this idea of Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith that is really important to touch on here. And it's especially important for those of us who would consider ourselves to be Christians, who, who, um, who believe that we've already taken this step of faith, that, that that step has been completed. We talked earlier about this word dwell and the way that it implies that Jesus is making our hearts his permanent home. But there's another deeper dimension to this word as well, one that we can miss. This word doesn't just mean a place for Jesus to live. It implies he has bought the house. It is his, and he is the master of the place now. This isn't just his home. This is his palace. It's where his throne room is. Where Jesus lives, Jesus intends to rule. And when we welcome him in, he intends that we would turn the place over to him. That brings me back again to the phrase we've just been looking at, this idea of, of this happening through faith. Like the word dwell, the expression through faith also has a much deeper implication than we might think. Through faith doesn't just mean something like, I did. As in, I accepted Jesus into my heart, and then on I go with a life that's largely unchanged, confident, that at some point in the future, I'll meet up with Jesus again for eternity. True faith doesn't mean something I did. It means something I do. A decision of faith is meant to be followed by a life of faith, of a constant, ongoing, everyday, 
and trusting of my life into Jesus' care and placing my life under his loving rule. The presence of Jesus in our hearts should begin to become evident to the people who are around us. Eventually, his presence will touch every part of our lives. If a decision of faith isn't followed by a life of faith, a life made distinctive in some way by the presence of Jesus in us, then it's fair for us to ask what that decision of faith really meant. Once I become a Purdue student, if I don't attend classes, if I don't hang out with my fellow students and go to the games and wear black and old gold, am I really a Purdue student? Once I become a U.S. citizen, if I don't move to my new country and submit to its governance and report for duty when I'm drafted to serve, then have I really become an American? And if I've said I do, if I'm not committed to living together under the same roof with my spouse and to spending time with him or her, to deepen our relationship, to finding ways to grow and sacrificially loving and serving my spouse, then what does that I do mean? And once I've accepted Christ into my heart by faith, if I'm not actively cultivating that relationship, and growing each day and turning my life over to him, worshiping him and serving him and loving and serving and spending time with other Christ followers and making him known to the people in this world who don't yet know him, then what does it mean when I say that I have faith? Faith doesn't just mean open the door to your heart to Jesus. It means give your heart over to Jesus. Have you done that? If you have never opened your heart fully to Jesus, you're going to have an opportunity to do that in just a moment. In Munger's sermon, after he welcomes Jesus in, he imagines taking Jesus on a tour through the various rooms in his house. And, and in each part of the house, with Jesus standing there next to him, he painfully realizes how much work there still is to be done everywhere he looks on his interior. Then a thought came to me, he writes. I said to myself, I've been trying to keep this heart of mine clear for Christ. I start on one room and no sooner have I cleaned that than another room is dirty. I begin on the second room and the first room becomes a mess again. I am so tired and weary trying to maintain a clean heart and an obedient life. I am just not up to it. So I ventured a question. Lord, is there any chance that you would take over the responsibility of the whole, the whole house and operate it for me? Would you take the responsibility to keep my heart what it ought to be and and my life where it ought to be, I could see his face light up as he replied, certainly, that's just what I came to do. You can't be a faithful Christian on your own strength. That's impossible, but let me do it through you and for you. But he added slowly, I'm not yet the owner of this house. I'm just a guest. I have no authority to proceed since the property isn't mine. I saw in a minute and I dropped to my knees. I said, Lord, you have been a guest and I have been the host. From now on, you are going to be the owner and the master and the Lord of this place. Running as fast as I could to the strong box, I took out the title deed to the house. I eagerly signed it over to belong to him alone. Here I said, here it is. All that I am and all that I have is yours. Now you run the house. I'll just remain with you as your servant and as your friend. He took over my life that day, and I can give you my word that there is no better way to live the Christian life. Does Jesus have full access to every part of your life? Have you invited him to have mastery? I want to conclude this morning by giving us a few minutes in quiet to have our own conversations with God about the things that we've been hearing this morning. 
I've come up with some slides that are really just kind of prompters for our prayers, maybe conversation starters for your conversation with the Lord. Those are going to be just uh, scrolling on the screen up in front of you, so feel free to pray with your eyes open as you pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up now, and they are going to just sing a reprise of the, of the last song that we sang, Come to the Altar. And once they finish that, we'll just enter into some silent time of prayer, of your own conversation with the Lord. These uh, prayer prompters will be, and, and points of reflection will be up on the screen. And then after we're done with that, I'm going to come up and lead us in a prayer of commitment. Jesus, you stand before me and you knock on the door of my heart. I open my heart to you. I put my confidence in you. I receive your love for me. I believe you are the one who came from heaven to seek and to save the lost. You are God in the flesh, and through your life on earth, you perfectly reveal the loving heart of God for me. And I believe that you came to reconcile me to God, sacrificially taking my place on the cross and purchasing my forgiveness through your death in order to bring me into a love relationship with God. Thank you, Jesus. I now open my heart to you and invite you to come and make your dwelling in me. Root and establish me in God's love for me. Even more, I invite you to be the master of the house. I surrender to your love and invite you to come and take over the management of my life. From this time forward, as you lead me, I will follow you and I will seek to live my life for you. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, either to begin the life of faith as a step that you have ne never taken before, or as a way of opening up your heart more fully and more completely to the indwelling presence of Jesus in you. I'm going to ask you to do two things today. First, I want to encourage you to tell someone. If you can't think of someone else to tell, I'll be in the back of the sanctuary. I'd love to be able to have you tell me. But tell someone else of the commitment that you've made today. And second, I want to encourage you to talk with someone about where to go from here, what steps you can take next to, to grow now that you've taken this step of faith. 